Welcome to the eighth episode in a podcast series brought to you by the International Arbitration Group at Dentons. With more than 40 partners and 120 lawyers, our group is widely recognized globally, trusted by corporations, states, and high net worth individuals for their most challenging international arbitration matters. In the last episode, we looked at disputes in the renewable sector and trends in international arbitration there. Today, we want to look at arbitral jurisdiction and the issues that arise when parties are challenging or defending that jurisdiction. My name is Rachel Howie. I'm a co-lead for the ADR and Arbitration Group in Canada, and I'm co-hosting today with my partner, Amy Kleisner, who is the head of the Arbitration Group in Germany. Thanks, Rachel. Today, we are pleased to welcome our partner, Lawrence Tay. Lawrence is a senior partner in the dispute resolution practice of Denton's Radic in Singapore. Welcome, Lawrence. Let's set the stage. When jurisdictional challenges arise, they can pose a significant challenge. Where does one start when looking at or pursuing or defending a challenge? I always think that at the bottom of every consideration about arbitral jurisdiction uh, is the question whether an arbitration agreement exists. And indeed, very often, the issue before an arbitral tribunal whose jurisdiction is being challenged is precisely uh, that question. One party asserts that an arbitration exists, which gives it the right to commence arbitral proceedings and gives the arbitral tribunal jurisdiction over both parties and the power to determine not just the dispute, but also uh, to make dispository um, uh, orders or relief. Most of the arbitral challenges that I've been involved in tend to involve this question. Another regular question that arises sometimes does not involve the existence of the arbitration agreement, but the challenge is that it's not so much that there is no arbitration agreement. In fact, both parties might agree that there is an arbitration agreement, only that one party, usually the respondent or the respondent to a counterclaim, says that the dispute does not fall within the scope of the arbitration agreement. And that means that both parties have agreed to send certain disputes to arbitration, just not this particular dispute. But I underscore and underline uh, the importance of the issue of arbitration agreement to uh, challenges to arbitral jurisdiction, um, not least because it is the one thing that gives an arbitral tribunal the power over the parties. And when is it that in your experience, jurisdictional challenges are typically raised? They can be raised uh, right at the outset. For example, um, in an exchange of correspondence prior to arbitration, they can arise after a request for arbitration or a notice uh, to arbitrate is served on the respondent and the respondent serves its answer to the request for arbitration or a respondent's notice. Uh, or it can arise a little bit later 
prior to the constitution of the tribunal by the respondent making a complaint to the arbitral tribunal under whose auspices the arbitration is taking place. It can arise at the time of service of the defense. And one mustn't forget, sometimes a jurisdictional challenge can occur quite suddenly and abruptly when the respondent doesn't so much as do something in the arbitral proceedings, but goes to its national court to obtain an anti-suit injunction and then serves it on the tribunal, the arbitral institution and the claimant. So to answer your question, Amy, it can happen at various stages. Thank you. So what happens after a tribunal decides on jurisdictional objections? Well, one of the questions that the tribunal has to deal with, uh, probably in consultation with the parties, is whether the question of arbitral jurisdiction should be dealt with as a preliminary issue or in an award on the merits. The difference between the two would be the tribunal deciding arbitral jurisdiction as a discrete issue free from any consideration of the merits and deciding it first, that is what we call a preliminary issue, or the tribunal can decide that it should determine jurisdiction together with the merits. Now, arbitral tribunals tend to look at um, determining this question, whether to decide as a preliminary issue or an award on the merits, by looking at the nature of the dispute or the challenge uh, to their jurisdiction. If the challenge to the jurisdiction is that the contract between the parties does not exist and therefore the arbitration agreement does not exist, then the question of contractual liability is rolled up with the question of whether an arbitration agreement exists. Now I explain it this way. If a contract exists, then the arbitration agreement is likely to exist. If a party uh, says that the contract is not in existence, it will usually also say that the arbitration agreement is also not in existence. Nothing was concluded. In that kind of situation, it is common for arbitral tribunals to think it better, more efficient, uh, more efficacious to the proceedings to decide the question of arbitral jurisdiction uh, in an award on the merits because it's rolled up with the question of contract formation and they think that um, there's it, it would be far more inefficient to decide it discreetly and as separate issues because you're going over the same facts. But where the question of arbitral uh, jurisdiction is not intertwined or rolled up with the merits in the way that I have described, then arbitral tribunals might think that it should be a separate and discrete question that is decided first, and that it is it would be wrong to incur parties' time and costs hearing and determining the merits when it might turn out that they have no jurisdiction after all. And that is the way arbitral tribunals uh, tend to deal with this uh, issue of whether to determine it as a preliminary issue or in an award on the merits. To answer your question, Amy, 
what happens after the tribunal determines jurisdiction. There are a range of options uh, to the party uh, who is dissatisfied with the determination of the tribunal. Some jurisdictions only allow a positive determination of jurisdiction to be reviewed by the courts. Other jurisdictions or countries allow both negative and positive rulings of jurisdiction to be reviewed by the courts. I'm going to take a situation of a country that allows both positive and negative uh, determinations of jurisdiction to be reviewed by the courts. If an arbitral tribunal determines jurisdiction, either positively or negatively as a preliminary issue, then the party who is dissatisfied with that determination can apply to the seat court or the court of the place of the arbitration to review the question of arbitral jurisdiction. And the court will determine it. If the court determines that the tribunal has arbitral jurisdiction, it will usually remit the case or the, the arbitral proceedings back to the tribunal to continue determination or alternatively remit it back to the arbitral institution such that uh, a separate tribunal is constituted. Sometimes it would depend whether the courts have disagreed with the uh, tribunal. For example, if a tribunal has made a negative declaration of jurisdiction and the court finds that there is, uh, in fact, arbitral uh, jurisdiction, then it might be that the arbitral institution would want, and indeed the parties might want, a separate uh, tribunal to be constituted. But that uh, is one way in which um, proceedings uh, can unfold. Another way is when a tribunal determines an award on the merits. The party who is dissatisfied with a positive determination of jurisdiction together with an award on merits uh, has recourse under uh, Article 34 of the Ancestral Model Law or the equivalent uh, in that country or jurisdiction's laws and applies to set aside the arbitral award on grounds among which is that the tribunal had no jurisdiction and you can find within the setting aside grounds wording that will support the argument that the award should be set aside because the tribunal had no arbitral jurisdiction. These are the ways um, that things can unfold after a tribunal determines jurisdiction, Rachel. Lawrence, looking at those court reviews and court applications, what kind of review does that court undertake? That's a very interesting question, Rachel. Sometimes a challenge to arbitral jurisdiction, for example, uh, over the issue whether an arbitration agreement was concluded, whether it was formed, whether it exists, um, involves the question 
of considering the oral testimony of witnesses. The arbitration agreement uh, could be said to have been formed orally, and then of course, um, evidenced in writing somewhere, otherwise it wouldn't fit the um, legal definition of an arbitration agreement. But one can see that if an arbitral agreement was formed orally, then the tribunal will be hearing the oral evidence of witnesses and considering that in the course of determining whether an arbitration agreement was formed. Now, if the tribunal, for example, decides that an arbitral agreement was formed and the respondent to the arbitration is dissatisfied with that determination, it can apply to the seat court or the court of the place of arbitration to review that determination. And then the interesting question is whether the court hears everything afresh or as lawyers call it, de novo, and what hearing the issue afresh means. Does it mean that the same witnesses have to attend before the court and that the entire process is painstakingly repeated word for word uh, as it was before the arbitral tribunal? Or is it a loose concept of a fresh hearing or a loose concept of a de novo hearing in the sense that the court undertakes a paper review, uh, it reserves for itself the full right to make its own determination, but relies, for example, on the documentary record and, the, and, and gives due consideration to the views of the arbitral tribunal. That can vary uh, from country to country. There's nothing uh, to my mind in the anti-trial model law that prevents um, an, a, a country or a national court from devising its own rules as to how it should review uh, arbitral uh, jurisdiction. I'll give an example that uh, in Singapore, the Singapore court does hear questions of uh, arbitral jurisdiction afresh, but uh, it would be a rare case where the entire process is repeated in court. It's more often than not that the court undertakes more of a paper review. There might be some crucial bits of elements which might move a Singapore court to want to hear orally direct. But in the main, the Singapore court would conduct a documentary review, give due consideration to the views uh, and conclusions of the tribunal, but at the end of the day, make its own um, decision. Other countries um, might adopt a different procedure and go either perhaps more of a uh, repetition of the process or in the other direction, less of a repetition of the process. And in fact, uh, hear it almost appeal style in the sense that certain decisions uh, concerning the facts and the events surrounding uh, the alleged formation of the arbitration agreement uh, would be treated uh, as settled in the way that the arbitral tribunal uh, has determined or found and only consider uh, 
questions of law or questions of mixed fact and law in reviewing arbitral jurisdiction. But as I've said, uh, it's a very interesting area uh, and one that perhaps does not have as much uniformity as in other areas of international arbitration, Rachel. This podcast session is very timely as what law governs an arbitration clause is being actively discussed around the world in connection with a recent decision of the English Supreme Court, Enka v. Chubb. Denton says analyze the practical effect of the court's decision in detail in a client alert that is available on the Denton's website for review. Very interesting. So questions in, do indeed remain open. Thank you very much, Lawrence, for sharing these insights with us. Our next session will be in a few weeks. Denton's is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see dentons.com for legal notices.